Welcome to the Humanizing Work Show. In today's episode, Richard interviews me about my running and how I went from not running at all to within three years time, completing a 45 mile double crossing of the Grand Canyon. We talk about the lessons I've learned from this experience, both personal ones and ones that can be applied at work and that I have applied at work, including the stories we tell about our own identity, the development of habits, going slow to go fast, and the importance of patience in any large change effort. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review it in your podcast app, or if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, like, and share the episode. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, on to the interview. Peter, you've made some major changes in your life over the last few years, and I think the way you've approached those changes has some valuable lessons for individuals and teams who'd like to make their own sustainable, positive change. So I want to talk about that story and some of the things that um, that you've learned along the way and that others can learn from it. So to set the stage, um, what'd you do last Friday that would have been completely incomprehensible to 2019, Peter? Last Friday, I ran a route in the Grand Canyon known as the Rim to Rim to Rim or the R3 or the double crossing. Uh, and I started at the South Kaibab Trailhead, ran down into the canyon, across the canyon and up the canyon, 21 miles to the North Kaibab Trailhead. Uh, took a quick break, turned around, and ran it back, uh, going up the Bright Angel uh, Trail. So that's 23 and a half miles. So a total of 45 miles, 11,000 feet of gain and descent. Uh, and I'm still feeling it a little bit today. Um, you were still smiling in the photo I saw from the end. Uh, so what happened a few years ago that kicked off this whole process that led to you running the Grand Canyon twice in one day? Yeah, I think a little backstory on my uh, athletics ability or <laughs> lack thereof might help paint the contrast a little bit there. Uh, in my teenage years, my early 20s, I was pretty fit. I was fairly athletic. I played a lot of pickup basketball. It was kind of my game of choice and stayed in pretty good shape doing that and other, you know, exploits. Uh, then in my 30s and 40s, as I began traveling more and work just kind of started eating more and more into the time I had to exercise or the time that I invested <laughs> to exercise. And by the time I was in my early 40s, I really wasn't doing anything. I was not exercising. I had adopted the diet of the frequent traveler, uh, <laughs> which is to say lots of I know heavy diet. restaurant food, uh, getting what you can get while you can get it because you don't know when you're going to eat again. Uh, so it was not that healthy of a lifestyle. And all of those, I would say, were sort of undercurrents. I, I wasn't worried about them. I wasn't you know, focused on them. And then in, I would say, the fall of 2019, my little brother Mark gave me a call. And Mark's, I call him my little brother. He's like 22 months younger than I am. But uh, Mark and I growing up were always good friends, but also very competitive. And he called me up to let me know that him and a college buddy of his were going to be running a marathon that is in my hometown. And he was going to fly in. His buddy was going to fly in from Oregon. And they were going to run this marathon together in February. And he just wanted to know if he could stay at the house. And so, of course, I was happy to see him and to meet his buddy Cody. And um, so they ended up, you know, planning to come to the house. And I hung up the phone. And because we're pretty close, we often will prank each other a little bit. 
And I got this idea for a prank, which is, you know, what if the morning of the race, as they were getting ready to go, I just walked out of my bedroom, like in full stereotype running gear, like with the old 70s headband and maybe a poofy hair or something like that, and just walked out and said, hey, I decided to run this little race with you guys. You want a carpool? <laughs> just like totally surprised it because Mark was a cross country guy. Mark had run and completed successfully several marathons. He had even invented his own training method called the rest method. And if you know Mark, that's very tongue in cheek. Uh, in his 20s, he could kind of just rest leading up to a marathon and do well. Um, and so uh, I, I thought that that would be a great prank. And it just sort of passed through, right? But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, oh, that actually might be kind of fun if I could pull it off. Is it even possible to run a marathon with no training? And I looked at the calendar, it was like four months away. So I, I Googled it, you know, uh, couch to marathon in four months to see if there's a training plan out there. And it turns out that there were a couple of couch to marathon training plans, but none in four months. There were like six month ones. And I thought, well, you know, that's pretty close. Maybe I could survive it. Maybe I wouldn't be fast. Maybe I wouldn't feel great, but maybe I could survive the marathon. And what I realized is I started thinking about that, like a whole bunch of other things in my life started kind of pressing on me. Like I was about 45 pounds heavier than I was when I would say I was, you know, in shape when I was fit. Um, uh, there had been a, an experience where I was asked to go help this youth group do this little mountain biking exposition for an hour and a half up, up the local hill. And uh, I had to bail out halfway up the hill because I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. I couldn't even pedal the bike uphill for half of the distance, and it wasn't that long of a hill. Uh, and so there were all these other things going on under the surface. I was like, let me try it. So I downloaded the training plan and started going. And how did that go? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's interesting. We're like almost exactly at the anniversary because I, I pulled it back up. It was October 9th, 2019 was the marathon training plan day one. And luckily, they, they ask you at your level of fitness, where are you starting from? Because day one training was uh, two-thirds of a mile, run two-thirds of a mile today. And so I pulled it up on my Strava account. Any runners or uh, other, other athletes that do kind of distance things, look it up on Strava, marathon training day one, uh, two-thirds of a mile at about a 13-minute pace. And I thought I was going to die at <laughs> two-thirds of a mile. It was just really hard. And then the training plan had you going basically six days a week. Uh, but, you know, shorter day the next day, and then you build up to a slightly run longer run, and it, it, there's a method to the madness, right? Mm -hmm. Within a couple and of weeks, I started feeling a little better. Like, oh, okay, maybe I could do this thing. What made it possible for you to even make it a couple of weeks? Because I, I know people who have tried programs like this, and like those first two days of even short runs, mm -hmm. they're feeling pain when they walk up the stairs, they yeah. give up on it. I think it was still that sort of off the cuff, I'm going to totally mess with Mark here. I think that was, that was my motivation for the first couple of weeks until, well, I think it was that and part of just like, I can try anything, I can do anything for two weeks. Like, no matter how painful this is, I can do it for two weeks and just see if it works for me. Um, so uh, that's what I remember is in the early days, it, it did get a little bit better. And so I think that was part of it. 
Like I saw that by day four, I felt a little better than day one. And I, I, even going back now and looking at the data, my pace was picking up a little bit even by day four. Still wasn't going long, but I, I could run a little faster. So I probably noticed some slight improvement. And, and that combined with I really want to mess with Mark and just the uh, discipline to say I can do anything for two weeks. It was probably some combination of those three factors. Yeah, that's interesting to me because you didn't really have a strong purpose or crisis or something. Like a lot of times when people make big changes, it's like I realized my health was falling apart and it was mm -hmm. just affecting my whole life and I had to make a big change and it mattered. And in, in your case, it was like, well, this could be fun and let me delegate sort of my, my discipline to this training plan for a couple weeks and just start building a new habit. And it seems like you found a larger purpose as you started seeing larger benefits, but you didn't need to have a strong purpose to motivate yourself into this and get up every day. What's your reflection on that? I think that the purpose was there and I didn't want to admit it because that would mean I'd have to do something about it. So I think that those concerns about my health were floating below, like just underneath my conscious, because if I actually admitted that I was pretty badly out of shape and that it was probably causing uh, uh, long-term problems for me, then I would have to do something about it. And like, I, I didn't want that. And so I think what I started to discover was as I, as I started to see that very early minimal progress, I think it allowed the true crisis, the health crisis that I had been kind of uh, ignoring, hiding from, to work on me a little bit more because it seemed like I, maybe I could actually do something about this. Um, I think part of the big story for me is the stories we tell about ourselves, like identity kind of stories, like I'm not a runner or I'm not disciplined. Two stories that I 100% believe were true about me in early 2019 that I discovered are completely made up stories. For whatever reasons, we make up these stories about ourselves, but they're completely self-limiting stories. And I told those stories for 44 years. And I think it was like, uh, to even consider that I might be capable of discipline. And by discipline, I mean I can, I can make a commitment to do something every single day and follow through on it without giving up. I just didn't believe that was me. I said, no, I'm not like Surely that. Surely you've done that as a musician. No. Uh, highs and lows. Oh. Um, okay. As a musician, you would think, right? But uh, as a musician, I was very blessed that I could... Uh, uh, I got very good at the trumpet very early and very quickly. And the way I stayed in shape for most of my career was get enough gigs to stay in shape because I was not a disciplined practicer. I never have been. So I would use actual paid gigs as this is how I'm going to stay in shape. Never been great at practicing, right? That's part of that. I think that's reinforced that story to myself that like even something I love like playing the trumpet, I'm not disciplined enough to do every day for long periods of time. So you accidentally did the immunity to change map kind of process where um, your couple weeks of initial training were a safe test of those hidden assumptions and competing commitments to I'm not a runner 
I'm, I'm not somebody who follows plans like this. And by not taking it too seriously, you tricked yourself into, mm. well, let me take a couple of weeks and see if maybe those things aren't as true as I thought they were. Yeah, I haven't thought of it through that lens of, of Keegan and Leahy's immunity to change model. But I think the competing commitment was I'm spontaneous and creative. Mm. Yeah. And so then I have to ask, um, have you lost some of that spontaneity mm -hmm. and creativity because you've adopted this discipline? No, that's the, that's the cool part of the story, right? Is that those are, again, self-limiting beliefs. If I'm disciplined about this thing, then I can't also be spontaneous and creative. And the reality is the discipline and the habits create more options for spontaneity and creativity because you're more capable as a human being, right? Uh, I think that's right, the, the underlying model of we should challenge those assumptions because maybe they aren't true. Mm -hmm. All right. So we talked about the first couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, did you make it to the marathon? Yeah, I made it to the marathon, but with some bumps along the road. So that was October 9th was the first run. The marathon was February 8th of 2019, 2020, sorry, February 8th of 2020. And in the training plan, I had a half marathon kind of as a training run. And I found one that was in mid-December uh, called the Holiday Half in San Diego. Uh, and all the way up through the Holiday Half, the training was just feeling like this. Getting better, getting faster, getting better, getting faster. And uh, through the, that half marathon, I felt pretty good. Uh, a couple days after the half marathon, my right knee started hurting, and I didn't know what was going on. In fact, I think we were at uh, our annual retreat in Tucson when it really started flaring up, and it got really bad at a run in uh, downtown LA. There's a, a running club called the Downtown LA Running Club when I was there for some work in January where I went out on some nine-mile run because now I'm doing longer and longer distances with this crew. And halfway through that, I just, there was so much pain in my knee, I couldn't keep going. I didn't know what that pain was. Turns out, after a lot of research, that was IT band syndrome, ITBS, which is a very common injury for runners in particular who are going too far too fast. And things start tightening up and causing things to pull and rub where they shouldn't rub. And uh, you build up just this repetitive use injury. And really, the only real way to recover from those is to stop doing that activity. So this is about a month before the marathon. Um, I said I kind of discovered it because, you know, I went to an orthopedist. Is this, is this some kind of structural issue? Um, I went to a physical therapist. Uh, and uh, I actually went to the physical therapist a week before the marathon. By the time I had figured out it's IT band syndrome, there's nothing. I, I won't do more damage by running the marathon. This is what my orthopedist said. He said, it'll hurt, but you won't do more damage. So I, I found a physical therapist to see if there's anything I could do to loosen it up a little bit. And she just kind of said, well, we can get you going, but uh, this is not going to be a fun run. And I actually did finish it. So by that point, I could run about two hours without the IT band really hurting. And then it just starts hurting. So I, I did finish the marathon. I think my time was five hours, 45 minutes. So it's a pretty long marathon time, but I finished it. I, 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 and here's the funny thing. Mark had used the rest method and he discovered that at age 43, <laughs> the rest method didn't work as well as it did in his twenties. 
and so he even suffered more than I did during the marathon, and, and he finished it. But I actually beat my runner brother in that marathon because <laughs> he had he had really not had time to do really any training for it. So uh -huh. um, we're not nearly as competitive as we used to be, but I still had that little, hey, I beat Mark in a run. That's cool. <laughs> so by this point, you're... Your story about yourself has changed a little bit. Now you're a runner, eh, and then you. Get I still this did not call myself a runner. The way to fix it, okay. Um, the way I describe I, myself, I'm trying was, to make sense of how the uh -huh. the IT band mm. syndrome and your changing identity intersected there. Yeah, I, I mean, as soon as I heard that I couldn't do more damage, I already had so much into you know I trained for so long. It was going to be with my brother. It, then it turned out that my uh, my sister-in-law, who lives in town, Corinne, she was going to be running the half marathon that day. So it was it was going to be this fun, cool family thing, and I was kind of all in on the commitment side of it. So I thought, if I can finish it without doing damage, I'm going to finish it. Right? Uh, I put so much effort into it. it probably some cost fallacy. It plays into, into a, a little bit there. Like yeah. I've sunk so much. Which into can be it, a yeah. useful thing for change sometimes, actually. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like yeah. sunk cost fallacy is the negative version. Skin in the game. Yeah. Is kind of the positive version. I'm invested in this. I want to see it through. Mm hmm. Um, and then I knew that I'd have to recover after that. I knew I would have to take time off my feet, like not running maybe swimming, maybe doing something else. But uh, I knew I'd have to let, there's a, a fluid packet that builds up in ITBN syndrome and it, it just needs to shrink down and get reabsorbed. And then you need to deal with the structural issues that caused it to be too tight in the first place, uh, which is almost always hip strength. Hmm. Have you been able to do that? Yeah. Uh, so I did take some time off and then I really wasn't sure what was next. Uh, but a friend of ours uh, in our local community here uh, he messaged me and said, hey, we're all going to hike across the Grand Canyon in October. A bunch of us are going. Do you want to join us? And I thought, well, that's just hiking. I could probably do that. And so that summer, after I had kind of let the IT band calm down and I uh, had started working on some stretching and strength things, uh, I started hiking. And I don't remember now how much running I was still doing, but in the summer in Arizona, most people are not running. Uh, so it was like early morning hikes uh, to prepare for the Grand Canyon. And so that October, it was exactly a year from when I started running that we did the first rim to rim, which is North Kaibab down to Bright Angel. So that's that 23 and a half mile leg as a hike and took about, I think probably eight to 10 hours to hike across. It was just gorgeous and beautiful. And it, again, it was kind of, I think it built on some of the habit, habits and disciplines from running. Um, and apply them in a slightly different thing, right? Hiking's different from running. You're, you're doing different things. It's different on the body. So I think that was a good build for me uh, to realize that I could hike these things. And I think towards the end of that training block, one time I was going downhill and I just started jogging. This felt like easier to run than to walk because you're kind of breaking yourself anyway. And I was like, oh, this is fun. It's fun to run downhill. And that just sort of stuck with me. Like, I like running downhill. This is fun. Uh, and, you know, sort of long story short is the next year when that group did the Grand Canyon, I ran it and did it in about six and a half hours, I think. 
that same thing that had taken 10 hours. And at the end of that run, I still felt good. Like after crossing the canyon once, I felt good. In fact, I went back down in the canyon several times to kind of meet other people and walk them out and even help somebody that was struggling as it got dark, uh, help kind of get them up out of the canyon. I realized I, I did a lot more miles than 23 and a half. And that day I said, I'm, I'm going both ways. I'm going to start training hard and go both ways. And so a lot of training that went into that. Um, since then, by the way, I've run the marathon uh, two more times. One more time. Two more times. I can't I keep, I lose track of time. Um, but yeah, I've run the marathon again. Uh, it was during COVID, so I ran it by myself. I printed out my own little runner's bib called the Peter Green Invitational <laughs> Marathon. There can be only one. I gave myself bib number one and ran a marathon distance in like four forty-five. Uh, so I've I've kept doing the marathon, and I think now these are my two. These are my uh, what would you call these milestone events mm-hmm. during the year. I do the Grand Canyon in October. I do the marathon in February, and those are six months apart. And it's a nice, you know, it's a nice way to bookend the year for me to think about what am I training for. Yeah. Um, let's talk for a moment about that. The point where you achieved your initial goal that got mm-hmm. you going. Yeah. And didn't have another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mentioned that I still didn't feel comfortable saying I'm a runner. Um, the way I described myself through that time was I'm a stubborn jogger. <laughs> and I didn't want to admit that I was a runner. Uh, because I, you know, I felt like I was getting there and then the injury setback maybe made me think, eh, maybe I'm not really a runner and I'm, I'm not fast. I mean, any runners out there, if you're wondering about my times, I'm pretty slow still, um, relative to the body of runners, right? I'm sometimes in the middle of the pack in some races and usually towards the back. So I didn't feel comfortable saying I'm a runner until I think until I ran the COVID marathon, the, the, there can be only one marathon. When I finished that one and it was on my own, like there was no aid stations. There were like nobody else. Well, actually there were some other people running a similar course that day. Cause we ran it on the day that it was originally scheduled before it got canceled. Uh. Uh, but I saw a few other people out and about, uh, when I ran that one, I think I started saying, why don't I feel comfortable calling myself a runner? I just ran a marathon for fun. I think that means I'm a runner. Like I've, you know, I'm, I'm running 30, 40 miles a week. I think I'm a runner and I'm not sure what caused the switch, but this is, I think one of the big lessons for me. I told that story for years. I'm not a runner. I'm not a runner. And I think it was to feel, feel like I don't have to compete with Mark because Mark was a runner. You know, we have these origin stories. I don't know where these stories come from. That's probably my guess. Mm-hmm. I don't want to compete with market running. Therefore, I'm not a runner. Therefore, I don't have to try. <laughs> uh, and that lasted with me for 44 years, 45. Um, and then eventually, uh, I realized that was just made up. I just made up that story because I can be a runner. Maybe I don't run today. But, but choosing that as an identity, I'm not a runner. Help me feel psychologically safe until I realized that's not serving me anymore. And being willing to step into new identity and saying, 
I am a runner. What does that say about me? Now that implies things about how disciplined I am. That implies things that now I have to live up to that new story I'm telling. And I think sometimes the reason that we hold on to those old self-limiting things is because if we were to tell the new story, we have to accept the responsibility that comes with that new story that we're going to tell. I am a runner. I am mm -hmm. disciplined. Now I have to live up to it. Where else has that happened in your life now that you've discovered you can make that kind of switch? Mm. Um, I'm capable of delivering a podcast once a week, every week, every week, every week, which can be hard uh, in, in the way our business works with our schedules. And, you know, we're, we both have families and lots of other commitments, uh, including athletics and music. Uh, yeah. That... Uh, that discipline story has been pretty big for me um, because a, a big part of my story was about, you know, I'm creative. I'm kind of up and I'm down. I, I'm capable of doing big, long, hard charges towards a finish line, and then I rest and recover. And having that as my only mode of operation was fairly limiting, recognizing that I can be disciplined. Um, the other part of this is just in general habit development. So when I started exercising, then I kind of needed to change my diet for the exercise to go well, or I would feel really poorly. And you just start craving different things when your body really needs those nutrients. And so I started craving healthier food. So I slowly started shifting my diet. Uh, around that time, I don't remember when this book came out, uh, but Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, came out. And I remember, you know, hearing a few interviews with him on various podcasts and deciding to, to buy the book and literally weeping at one point in that book when I started to realize another story I told about myself, which is, I don't need sleep. I'll be yeah, fine. I remember being really concerned about that one. I think I was pushing you to read the book at the time. Yeah, it may, you may have been one of those influences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was just, a, again, another identity. Like, I don't need sleep. But I remember getting uh, uh, halfway through that book when he talks about the pretty strong link between a lack of sleep and Alzheimer's, uh, which has destroyed, you know, older generations of my family um, mm. and currently making its way into the generation right above ours. Um, I just remember weeping when I realized, oh, I'm doing this to myself. I'm like almost guaranteeing that that will be my fate if I don't change things. And so that was a huge turning point for me when I realized I can't, I have to cha change that story immediately. That story I've been telling is just wrong, that I don't need to sleep. That's just not true for 99.99% of the population. There aren't exceptions to that rule. You need the sleep. So I started changing that, uh, hydration, like all of the other things that support exercise. So exercise was the keystone habit for me. As soon as I started exercising. What, is, what does keystone habit mean? For keystone habit, person? I think, comes from, is this from Charles Duhigg's book? I think, yeah, I think I'm so. really bad at tracing where an idea came from because I read too much and just integrate. Um, so I, I apologize too. if I <laughs> trace this to the wrong source, but I think it was Duhigg's book. Uh, he talks about a keystone habit as a habit that makes other healthy habits easier. Like you get up and you make the bed immediately psychologically, it makes it easier to 
to develop other healthy habits, you get this quick little, hey, I accomplished something. I got something done already today. It opens some psychological space to do other things. So keystone habit is one that makes other habits easier. So exercise for me, running, was a keystone habit that made it much easier for me to shift my habits around diet, around what I drink, around how I sleep. Um, so all of those habits were uh, based on that keystone or, or laid on that keystone of, um, of exercise. Um, and then they seem to be mutually beneficial for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's a cycle, right? Yeah. So finding that, I guess, strat what Josh Ellis calls a strategy, like a mm -hmm. collection of habits that support and reinforce each other. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems like you have that in a way that makes your change more sustainable in each of those areas. Yeah, it turns into a flywheel, right? Where as long as I keep nudging the flywheel forward, like looking for the next uh, growth edge in running, looking for the next improvement in a diet, looking for the next way to, as long as I keep just nudging the flywheel, it doesn't take a lot of energy to keep it going. And I, it, you just get better and better and healthier and healthier, right? Uh, so that's been that's been important for me before we wrap here what advice do you have for people um, or teams who would like to make sustainable positive change for themselves mm. i think teams tell stories about themselves too so i would start with like what stories do we tell about who our team is what are we capable are there self-limiting ones well we'll never be able to because we're not that kind of team uh, so think about the stories that we tell about our teams as well as ourselves as individuals. Uh, for me, patience turned out to be a big part of sustaining the change because of the injury. And I've learned since then that this is like completely common. It's not unusual for somebody to get into running, go too fast and, and think that I need to run fast to get faster. And it turns out that there's this maxim in the running community, which I think is true in a lot of cardio development, which is that if you want to run fast, you have to run slow. Uh, and it turns out that just running at a low heartbeat where you and I could have this kind of conversation while we're running <clears throat> is the thing that builds up the capability for people to actually run fast. So you do almost all of your training at a slow speed. I think there's something in that for teams as well, which is like heroic efforts are not the thing that make you a great team. It's slow and steady. We develop capabilities to make things easy, capabilities to where we're just completely sustainable pace. And then when we need to, because we've built up that engine, we can go fast if we need to. Uh, there's a pivot in the market. We can, we can do it. Not the least of which because we're not burnt out from always being heroic. When this thing happens to us, we have the capacity and the capability to do it. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Like you could sprint right now if you needed to in a way you couldn't before. Yeah, Even I though could sprinting is not what you train. Today <laughs> would be hard <laughs> since I'm still just a couple days south of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> but I actually did. That's it was, fair. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I uh, Somebody forgot something in, a, in the car yesterday, and I just, without even thinking, started running. And I said, oh, I can run again. Because uh, it was really hard for me to run or even walk yesterday. <laughs> My calves were pretty tight. Uh, but yeah, well, I can... one of my sons commented on this a couple of weeks ago when uh -huh. we, like we're we're running our conference up at nine thousand feet in Vail, and uh, I'm walking around on crutches because of ACL surgery, and wanted to see what was on a sign fifty feet away to see if I could park in a particular spot, 
And as my son put it, like Peter was standing next to us and then he was over there at the sign. <laughs> and three years ago, you didn't move like that. No. Yeah. So you, you have a, a different freedom even in those little things because you've built habits in your, mm-hmm. your life. And I see this with teams like the, the team that can run at a sustainable pace can collaborate well on the everyday stuff. When an interesting challenge comes up, um, whether that's something difficult or uh, an opportunity, they're able to rally around that in a way that they couldn't if their normal mode of working was just wear themselves out with bursts. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I think building up that sustainable engine engine is big. And then I think if you're if you're interested in improving things, which probably anybody listening to this show is, a huge lesson for me was that uh, I think we overestimate. Well, well, in fact, there's a Bill Gates quote around this, right? Uh, people, most people <laughs> overestimate. There's so many quotes around this. <laughs> yeah, most people overestimate what they can get done in a year and underestimate what they can get done in ten. And I think that the ten-year uh, boundary of that is way longer than it needs to be, because it's been three years since I started running, and I just ran forty-five miles back and forth across the Grand Canyon in fifteen hours. That's just crazy. That's that kind of distance is not normal, uh, and I just slowly and slowly built up to it. So you know, we started this podcast episode that way what did you do on Friday that you wouldn't have even considered? I didn't even know that thing existed three years ago. So three years of effort, uh, it's just a different, it's a category change of what I think is possible about in my own life and what what I'm aware of out in the world. I think this is true of teams as well. You're probably anxious to make change and you're going to develop the team version of IT band syndrome. If you try and go too fast, you're going to burn people out. You're going to create friction where it shouldn't be. And uh, so be patient in the pace of change, because if you stick with patient, sustainable, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time change, you're likely to see the same kind of three-year difference that I have seen in my capability massively different. I remember seeing this on on teams that I've worked on, where if you look back three years ago, you're like, wow, remember when we used to do it that way? That's crazy. I can't even imagine doing things that way anymore. And it's now it's just the way it is. It's just habits now, these new agile ways of doing things. Um, so I think that's a big lesson for teams as well, is it's probably going to go slower than you want. And you might look back three years from now and say, wow, look at how far we've come. Peter, thanks for sharing and reflecting on your story. I think this will be useful to a lot of people. Mm